The text for Pastor John's message this morning is found in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, and follow along as I read verses 1 through 12. That's 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 12. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on your hearts to be known and read by all men. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our competence is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not in a written code, but in the Spirit. For the written code kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the dispensation of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such splendor that the Israelites could not look at Moses' face because of its brightness, fading as this was. Will not the dispensation of the Spirit be attended with greater splendor? For if there was splendor in the dispensation of condemnation, the dispensation of righteousness must far exceed it in splendor. Indeed, in this case, what once had splendor has come to have no splendor at all because of the splendor that surpasses it. For if what faded away came with splendor, what is permanent must have much more splendor. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're talking today about the third fruit of hope, namely boldness. Two weeks ago, the first fruit of hope was joy. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope. And then last week, the second fruit of hope was love. I give thanks to God, having heard of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, Colossians 1, 4, and 5. Next Sunday, we will talk in our last message in this series on hope about the fourth fruit of hope, namely endurance. And today, we focus on the third fruit of hope, namely boldness. And our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. It's very simple and very straightforward. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And you can see immediately why I think that boldness is a fruit of, of uh, hope. It says that because we have this great hope, the result is our boldness. And so, right off the bat, it applies itself to our lives. If we're not fearless in our acts of righteousness, and if we're not unashamed of the gospel, and if we're not straightforward about the truth of God, probably, this text says, the, the, the issue is a defective hope. Either we're ignorant about what our hope is or could be, or we just have never thought 
perhaps, about the connection between the strength and certainty of our hope or and the boldness that we have in Christ. And yet this text makes the connection very clear. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Now the verse, the text, verse 12, comes in the middle of a perplexing chapter. It leaves many readers in a great fog. And yet we do have to ask, what is this hope? When he says such a hope, he has a particular hope in mind that he's talking about. And what is this boldness? We have to blow away at least enough of the fog in this chapter to see what the hope and what the boldness is that he's talking about in verse 12. And so my suggestion is that we do four things together this morning. Number one, that we glance back at the Old Testament background for these verses. I don't think you can understand these verses without knowing Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Second step will be to walk slowly a verse at a time through the first 12 verses of this chapter 3. Just explain them as best we can as we go. The third step will be to step back then and say, okay, what is this hope that he says he has and what is the nature of this boldness? And then the fourth step will be to ask again finally, what about the relationship between these two in our own lives and, and some practical questions to ask at the end. So those are, those are the four steps I'd like to go through with you. Step number one, let's go back to the Old Testament for a while. And if you are uh, holding a Bible and would like to follow along, let's turn to two texts, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these three big prophets come together. And so you can find them there pretty easily somewhere after Psalms. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. So you can put your finger in at Ezekiel and we'll look first at Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33. What we have here is a prediction or a prophecy of the new covenant that Paul believes is being fulfilled in his ministry. Verse 31, Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And here come the terms of the covenant. And you can see how much divine initiative there is in it. I will put my law within them. And I will write it upon their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. That's what will happen when the new covenant comes to pass. Now, over to Ezekiel 36. And Ezekiel 36 is another description with somewhat different words about the new covenant promise that is being fulfilled in Paul's ministry. Ezekiel 36, let's start at verse 26 and read two verses. 36, 26. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you 
and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. So, what are these two texts saying? They're saying that someday, down in the future, from Jeremiah and Ezekiel's perspective, God was going to do a new work. He was going to establish a new covenant. He was going to take a new initiative, and it would be a better one than the old covenant established at Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Law. It would be better not because the commandments of the new covenant would be better commandments, but because they would be now written on the heart and not on stone. Another way of saying that is to notice that there would be an outpouring of God's Spirit. He says, I'm going to put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. When the new covenant is inaugurated, which it was at the coming of Jesus and Pentecost and in the ministry of the apostles, the period of inauguration, the Holy Spirit was poured out in a way that it was not poured out in the Mosaic period. And God puts His Spirit within His people. He causes them to walk in His commandments. He writes the commandments on their hearts, not just on stone, so that the new covenant is an inner work of God. It's different from the old covenant. In the old covenant, the Mosaic law was given, but what did it meet in the hearts of the people? It met stone, unbelief, and rebellion, except in a very small remnant. And when the law of God, which is holy, just, and good, meets with a rebellious, unbelieving, stony heart, it does one thing. It kills or condemns. And so the law was a failure as far as assembling a great, renewed people. But the new covenant, according to the passage in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, is going to be very different, not so much in the commandments that are made, but in the work of the sovereign Holy Spirit. I will put my law within you. I will write my law on your heart. I will take out the heart of stone. I will put in the heart of flesh. I will put myself within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That's a new work of God. The authoritative, sovereign, irresistible work of the Holy Spirit spearheading the gospel ministry through mission in Paul's own life. And so he saw himself as a fulfillment of these Old Testament promises as he preached. So let's go now to his statement in 2 Corinthians 3. This is step number two in the message, an overview or a walkthrough of verses 1 to 12 in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen for the language of new covenant that we've just read about in the Old Testament as we read. Verse 1 to 3, first of all. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on your hearts, to be known and read by all men. And you know 
that you are a letter from Christ delivered or ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone. So there's the explicit contrast now with the Old Covenant. But on tablets of human hearts. So it's very obvious what he's up to here, isn't it? He says, look, I'm an apostle of God and a minister of the new covenant. In me and through me, the Holy Spirit is writing the law of God on hearts, not on stone this time, on hearts. This is the fulfillment of the new covenant when I'm preaching and when I'm ministering, he says. And therefore, they are his letter of recommendation. He doesn't need any artificial letter. When he wants an authentication of his ministry, he says, look at what God did in those people's lives when I came to Corinth in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verses 4 to 6, he goes on. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, namely to be that kind of a fulfillment of the new covenant. Not that we're sufficient of ourselves as claiming anything is coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God who has qualified us to be ministers of a new covenant. There's the phrase explicitly. Not in written code or not in letter, but in the Spirit. For the written code kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, what's Paul doing here in these uh, three verses, four to six? He is explaining and defending his confidence to be an instrument of God as a fulfillment of the new covenant. Such is the confidence we have through Christ. I don't know if you feel the weight of that statement. I was sitting in my, or I was at my window this morning looking uh, across the skyline about five o'clock as the buildings were just beginning to light up with the sunrise this morning. And, And the thought came to me as I was pondering the message, how many people in this city know that these buildings stand for the fulfillment of the new covenant? Business and life and enterprise are sustained and held in being for one reason, that the new covenant might come to fulfillment in Minneapolis, that the Holy Spirit might reign and move, that hearts of stone might be taken out and hearts of flesh put in, that men and women might be gathered in to the people of God, that worship might ascend How many people know that's why we have a city? That's why we are here on the earth. That's why the universe exists. That the promises of God might be fulfilled in His people in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you begin to ask that question and feel that we exist and this earth is held in being for the fulfillment of the new covenant, then verse 4 might clobber you. This is my confidence that I'm a minister of the new covenant. And you can see why then he sort of shrinks back and realizes what an audacious thing he said and qualified in a sense by saying, not that we're sufficient of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God. The ministry of the new covenant is a divine work. It is not a human work. I can't do anything to make this happen. The Holy Spirit takes out hearts of stone. The Holy Spirit writes 
the law on the heart. The Holy Spirit changes people. The Holy Spirit wins the people for God. The Holy Spirit causes people to walk in His statutes. Who am I? I am an instrument in the hand of God. I am a pen. I'm a chisel. And then, verses 1 to 6 end with a contrast between letter and spirit and death and life. You see that? The end there. The letter or the written code kills and the spirit gives life. You see, where the problem in the world, and this has been the problem ever since Adam and Eve fell, and it'll be the problem until Jesus comes. There's one major problem to deal with in the world. Where the problem in the world is spiritual blindness and death, the main need is not for more laws and more prescriptions. All they do is kill people who are blind. What's needed is power. Spiritual power. The new covenant, without the new covenant being fulfilled at Bethlehem, we're all dead. We're done for. Unless the new covenant is fulfilled in Minneapolis, is fulfilled in the nations of the world, the Great Commission will never be fulfilled. And the new covenant is just this. I will send my spirit. I will take out the heart of stone. I will put in the heart of flesh. I will write my law upon their hearts. I will cause them to walk in my statutes. I will make them my people and I will be their God. John Piper and these pages do nothing without the Holy Spirit. And as you sit there, nothing transpires in your heart spiritually without the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon you. We are shut up to the new covenant promises of a sovereign work of an irresistible Holy Spirit to transform the dead into the living. And how it ought to humble us and make us plead to the Holy Spirit to work. Now this contrast between death and life and letter and spirit is picked up and he goes on in verses 7. Let's read 7. Now if the dispensation of death carved in letters on stone, you see what that is, that's the Ten Commandments, came with such splendor that the Israelites could not look at Moses' face because of the brightness fading as it was. Let's break in here for just a comment. He's referring now to the Mosaic Law, to the Old Covenant, and he said it was spectacular. If you had been there, you would have fallen on your face. It was so spectacular that they couldn't touch. If a goat stepped on that mountain, he'd drop dead. This was glory. And he says, if the dispensation of death it was just killing. These commandments just killed people because it met rebellion in their hearts. So it killed. If the dispensation of death came in glory like that, how much more? Verse 8, picking it up. Will not the dispensation of the Spirit be attended with greater glory and splendor? Now notice the contrast Dispensation of death contrasted with dispensation of what? Not life, but the Spirit. 
Why? Because verse 6 says it's the Spirit that gives life. Paul is utterly God-centered. He could have said life, but he didn't want to miss a chance to say God makes life. God gives life. The Spirit gives life. We're not talking about life in the abstract. We're talking about Holy Spirit-given life, miracle life, divine life. So he doesn't miss a trick to get God in here. Dispensation of death versus dispensation of Spirit-giving life. And glory, he says. This dispensation which began with Jesus Christ, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the gospel, and extends till Jesus comes. This dispensation of the Spirit is one full of glory. Have you seen the glory of God in the face of Christ in the gospel that causes you to go to your face? Will you see the glory of the Son of Man when He comes to gather all those who've not been ashamed of Him? This is an age of glory in the gospel and at the end in the God of the gospel. Verse 9, for if there was a splendor in the dispensation of condemnation. Here's another name for it. The dispensation of righteousness must far exceed it in splendor. Indeed, in this case, what once had splendor has come to have no splendor at all because of the splendor that surpasses it. For if what faded away came with splendor, what is permanent must have much more splendor. Notice the contrast now. The dispensation of righteousness in verse 9 is not contrasted with the dispensation of unrighteousness. There was no unrighteousness in the law. It was holy, just, and good, Paul says in Romans 7.12. The contrast is between a dispensation of righteousness where the Holy Spirit has come, opened the heart of people to believe, and by faith they have received the gift of divine righteousness, and a dispensation of condemnation where the Word of God did not meet with Holy Spirit changed hearts and faith, but with stony hearts of rebellion, and the result was condemnation. The law condemns and the law kills where it doesn't have the fulfillment of new covenant promises behind it. Namely, life, a soft heart, a spiritual awakening. That happens every Sunday in this room where the Holy Spirit touches a heart. The Word of God brings life where the Holy Spirit is not touching but leaving that person in their stony rebellion, the Word condemns and kills. This is an awesome thing. We were talking about it as a staff just before we came in here while we were praying. Hardly able to grasp what Paul says in the chapter just preceding this one where he says, I am the aroma when I preach the gospel of Christ to God. 
the aroma of death to death to those who are perishing and the aroma of life to life to those who are being saved. Paul knew every synagogue he entered, there were people who would call his message stinking. It stinks what you say. And they're on their way to hell because of it. And there were people who would say, that's life. That's life when he talks like that. And they're on their way to heaven. And it is an awesome thing to preach the gospel. Or tomorrow morning to speak with a neighbor over a cup of coffee and take the gospel on your lips. It is an awesome thing because there will be the aroma of Christ and it will either stink or smell like life. And the ways part for the sheep and the goats. And you can see why he felt he had claimed such an awesome thing to say, I'm a minister of the new covenant. In my life, a way is being cut through the world and the division is happening. It's a serious thing to believe the gospel and to live in a world of fallen people. It's an awesome responsibility, not just to preach, but to work and live with unbelievers. Take the gospel or not upon your lips. And then, after contrasting the dispensation of righteousness and the dispensation of condemnation, he points out that the new covenant brings about a glory that is permanent. See that word in verse 11? Permanence, abiding, remaining. And then comes our text, and I think we're ready to hear it now. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. So we move now to step three in the message and ask, what is this hope? Have we seen enough to define the hope that Paul has and to get an idea of what his boldness is, let me try to sum it up from what I've seen and been very deeply moved by in my own study of this. His hope is that the new covenant promises are actually being fulfilled in his ministry. The long-awaited, long-expected day when the Holy Spirit would come from on high and lead the gospel through the world, taking out hearts of stone, putting in hearts of flesh, writing the law on hearts, assembling a people of God, gathering a kingdom, assembling praisers. It's here. It's happening. My life and my ministry are the spearhead of the gospel, he says. That is my hope. I am not hoping in a written word anymore. I'm hoping in a living Christ to do the work for me as I preach. The Holy Spirit is going to create new hearts. The Holy Spirit is going to cause the obedience He requires. The Holy Spirit is going to preserve permanently all the work that He brings about. What we have here is a hope for gospel victory. God the Father has chosen a people for Himself God the Son has died for those sinners. God the Holy Spirit is going to win those people and give them new hearts and assemble them in the people of God. He cannot 
lose. Every time he preaches, there is victory. As many as are appointed unto eternal life will believe. Acts 13, 48. Every time you speak a word for Christ, there is victory. If you have such a hope, you will be very bold. What is boldness? Well, everybody knows what boldness is. But let me mention three aspects of boldness. And you could get these from your own study by just asking this question. What's the opposite of boldness? Number one, the opposite of boldness is fear or timidity. And so the first aspect of boldness to think about is the courage to be fearless in the face of persecution. An example from Paul's life, he comes to Thessalonica, he's been in uh, Philippi, where he's been insolently treated and put in prison. And then he writes about that. Though we had already suffered and been treated insolently at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the face of great opposition. So what's boldness? Boldness is the courage to be fearless in the face of opposition. Boldness is overcoming the fears you have of the consequences of being straight out with the gospel. Second, the opposite of boldness is shame. Shame. And so the second aspect of boldness is the courage to be unashamed. Here's an example from Paul's life. He's, he's in jail in Rome. He's facing possible execution. He writes about it like this. It is my eager expectation and hope that I shall not at all be ashamed. What's the alternative? But that with full courage or literally much boldness. Now as always, Christ might be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So what is boldness? Boldness is being unashamed of the gospel unashamed that you're a Christian, unashamed of Christ. Third, the opposite of boldness in the New Testament, this word boldness, parousia, has a peculiar nuance. It's not obvious in English, but I think you can see it once you hear it. The opposite of boldness in the New Testament is very often Guarded speech, minced words, indirect, vague, obscure, fudging, political, slithering communication. When a bold person speaks, according to the New Testament usage of the word, people know what he means. Its opposite is a kind of cagey, slippery, subtle, obscure, 
covering of the truth with euphemisms and circumlocutions and vague generalities so that when you get done, people say, what was that? What's he trying to get at anyway? And, and many people talk that way today, politically and religiously. I just read... I don't know whether I should say this or not. I don't think there'll be any. I just read a charter for a ministry. Let's just leave it real general. A charter for a ministry. I never read so many words on one page that said so little. I mean, there is a way of talking in the middle or toward the end here of the 20th century that uses words that don't mean anything. I mean, we could just list them. Boom, 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 boom. Morally vacuous words to describe the aims of education, usually. Morally vacuous or intentionally ambiguous language that leaves you no clear sense of what anybody thinks about right and wrong. It is just an epidemic of ambiguity in our culture. And this text says, if you hope in God, you'll be straight up, straightforward, clear, plain, lucid in your talk. People will know what you mean when you say it. And when they ask your opinion, you won't answer a question they didn't ask. Like so many people do on KSJN, the radio, which is my favorite station, by the way. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Now, what does Paul mean by bold right here? I think primarily he means the third meaning. Namely, he speaks clearly, straightforward, doesn't pull any punches. People know what he means when he talks. And the reason I think that is because the text that follows Contrast it with Moses and his veiled ministry. But since fearfulness before persecution and shame before rejection and fuzzy talk before the world are so closely related, I think it's fair to say that the meaning of this verse is when you and I have such a strong hope in the work of God, we will be fearless before persecutors. We will be unashamed before those who might reject us or make fun of us or think we're outdated. And we will be unwilling to cloak the gospel in a fog of spiritual language that leaves people not knowing whether we are a Hindu or a Christian. That's what's going to happen when you start hoping in God the way Paul hopes in God. And that brings us to the last point. What's the relationship now between hope and boldness? It's very plain. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Hope, strong confidence in what God will do by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and in this age to the consummation. That hope frees you from fear and makes you very bold. The sovereign work of God in fulfilling the promises of the new covenant is the key to boldness. If we don't share Paul's boldness, it may be because we're ignorant and 
This morning may have been the day of discovery of what the new covenant really means in the sovereign, irresistible, irresistible victory of the Holy Spirit in the preaching and sharing of the gospel. Or the problem may be that you knew all of this already. But there is an element of pride in our lives that keeps us from yielding to the humbling implication of hope. Now you say, what's that? What's the humbling implication of hope? Well, I close by asking two questions. And the answer to these will be the answer to that, I hope. The first question is, someone might say, aren't there people who are very bold who don't have hope? Aren't there mountain climbers who take their lives in their hands and, and commit great risks and do amazing acts, uh, uh, feats of daring and courage and boldness, not because they know they're going to get to the top or because they're hanging by a rope, but because they want to get to the, to the top. And isn't boldness more admirable like that than when you are got this rope and there's a strong man at the top and every little step you take, you're just depending on the rope? Second question, how do you keep boldness from becoming brash and boastful. That's a significant issue. How do you keep boldness from becoming brash and boastful? Now, I put those two questions together because the answer to each is the same. The answer to number one is yes. It is more admirable to take courageous risks without any strong man holding the rope at the top of the mountain. If your goal is to be admired yourself, and the answer to the second question follows from that. If your goal is to be admired yourself, of course, it makes more sense to be bold without a rope. But if your goal in climbing, in living, is not to display your heroism, but the strong man's strength and skill and dependability at the top, then the only jumps and connections that you're going to make you will make in order to display His glory. You'll accent your hanging on that rope. You'll show people who's got the strength in this universe. And the answer to the second question, how can we keep boldness from becoming brash and boastful? Don't jump across any chasms except where your daddy has promised with an oath to catch you no matter what. In that, 
you cannot boast. So, since we have such a hope, and only because we have such a hope, can we and must we be bold, fearless in our righteousness, and unashamed of the gospel and forthright in all we say. And may the God of the new covenant perform it in our hearts. Amen.